Hello, I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is The Opiango Line. Today is Canada Day, and to all our listeners, we wish you a relaxing afternoon as far away from the COVID-19 pandemic as humanly possible. As well, we hope you take a little time for yourselves and settle back into an easy chair and think, if only for a few moments, about what it means to be Canadian. We know that a lot of you will miss the traditional fireworks tonight or those July 1st picnics and parades that so often seem to represent how our politicians and government officials think we like to celebrate Canada Day. So we thought we'd try to take your mind off these things by offering you something completely different. Last week, one of our producers piled into his old half-ton truck and rolled on down to Kingston, Ontario, home of our first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald. With digital recorder in hand, he made a unique Canadian who happens to be a long-standing friend of the Upper Ottawa Valley, having at one time been a cub reporter with the Pembroke Observer. His name is Arthur Milnes. And no, he's not some famous politician or high-ranking government official who can supply us with fireworks, a parade, or even a picnic. But if you listen closely to his stories about Canadian history in the making, all perfect for a relaxing Canada Day, you will hear priceless anecdotes about those who make history, if not those who appear in countless headlines around the world. In fact, you'll probably feel something akin to metaphorical fireworks, That is, if you want to get up close and personal with Canadian Prime Ministers, American Presidents, and other world leaders. Then again, Arthur Mills considers himself just an ordinary Canadian who, ever since childhood, simply followed up on his own insatiable curiosity about Canadian history, past, present, and future. And thanks to the sheer power of his own handcrafted letters that he sent far and wide since he was 10 years old, Arthur Milnes can now draw us a very personal portrait of those who made much of Canada's political history in the past 50 years. In those five decades, he also edited 13 very important books and wrote countless newspaper and magazine articles, all in some way or another, about the making of Canadian history. And yet, Arthur Milnes swears he's no longer a journalist, not really an academic, and certainly no practitioner of partisan politics. Rather, by his own admission, he's simply what he's always been, a curious Canadian. We'll gladly accept that suggestion, if by that he means a raconteur extraordinaire and a man so ordinary that he boldly hides in plain sight one of the most extraordinary Canadian experiences you are ever likely to encounter. He has more than a few surprising things to say, not only about Renfrew County, but his conversation is so chock-full of such surprising historical anecdotes that he is apt to redefine for you what it means to be Canadian. So get ready as we now join Arthur Mills on his back deck, overlooking his English garden, with his nine famously historic trees planted there by seven Canadian prime ministers and one American president and his first lady. Well, first off, I just want to say happy uh, Dominion Day to everybody. Uh, None of this Canada Day stuff. I'll meet you halfway, and it can be Dominion Canada Day, but I am my father's son, and I believe in tradition and history, so it will always be Dominion Day to me uh, until they lay me down. 
well, like I said, Dad was a history teacher, and uh, he was very inspired and respectful and believed strongly in um, Canada's institutions, uh, the monarchy, uh, parliament, uh, even with uh, American politics. Uh, he believed strongly in respecting the office, uh, understanding its history, whether that was the mayor, whether that was a prime minister or the premier of Ontario. And uh, <laughs> we were sitting in the basement uh, watching uh, TV, my mom and my dad and uh, myself, and I would have been nine years old or something. It was in the mid-70s. And I can remember it in my mind's eye like yesterday. And uh, we were watching a television show that was a, a look at, you ready for this, animal control in London, England. And I, I can remember the scene to this day that upset me. So they showed dogs and cats being euthanized uh, because there were so many, uh, so many uh, stray dogs and cats. And I was furious. Who could kill a kitten or a puppy? Especially in England, that great mysterious place where the queen lived. How could they do this? She loved corgis. She loved dogs. And I you know, started to express this to my parents. And my father looked at me and he said, Well, why don't you write the queen? So I wrote the queen. And I expressed my outrage. I went to Cedarbrae Library um, uh, in, in my hometown. And I looked up the queen's address. There was no... Uh, internet or anything and I found the address and postal code for Buckingham Palace and I hand wrote my uh, letter of outrage off to the Queen of Canada and the Queen of England telling her that she needed to step in and stop cats and dogs being killed uh, in London and I don't remember how I mailed it. I, maybe my parents helped me. But if I know myself, I probably went to the post office and did it myself. But I honestly can't remember. So I don't know how long after. I don't know, a month. I, I honestly can't remember. I arrived uh, home, and my mother was quite excited. And uh, she said, you wrote the Queen. And I, <laughs> I said, yeah, I did. And uh, my mom said, well, your package from Buckingham Palace arrived today. <laughs> and uh, there I was in grade three and I opened up and there was this uh, wonderful letter from uh, Buckingham Palace that explained in detail why Her Majesty as a constitutional monarch couldn't step in and stop the dogs being killed and the cats but how much she uh, enjoyed hearing my views and she would pass on Her Majesty would pass on to the relevant officials uh, my concerns and that was just, uh, uh, I, I don't know, a life-changing moment that if you were concerned about an issue, uh, write to people. And uh, that was, boy, more than 40 years ago, and I'm still writing. So uh, in my parents' basement, my father had an extremely large library and uh, hundreds of books uh, sorted into sections. Uh, medieval history was his one of his passions. Uh, he had studied at university. Uh, Greek and Roman uh, history, because Dad taught classics uh, as well. Um, he also taught Latin. So all these books, and then 
he had uh, another section of Canadian history. You know, Donald, I still remember it like yesterday. The first time I ever picked up Donald Creighton's uh, uh, incredible biography of John A. MacDonald was in my dad's house. Um, he also, really interesting um, impact on me, I think, as my career turned out, uh, was he also had a lot of uh, volumes of speeches by leaders. And I particularly remember things like, uh, you know, uh, Herbert Asquith's address on whatever issue to the British Parliament. He had things like that. And I, at early age, uh, developed a great interest in historical speeches. I don't know why. Uh, looking back on it, I think as a youth or a young person, I, I already uh, saw speeches and memoirs as well um, as a way that a historical figure spoke directly to me. Uh, there was no filter, right? And uh, again, speeches have always been a, a passion of mine. Well, in high school, I started to, uh, while other people were uh, out trying to find dates, me and my best friend, uh, Tom Harrison, we used to actually watch Question Period every night on TV Ontario. Uh, we were the ultimate geeks. And we would watch, and this was a grand era uh, uh, when I was a teenager. You had these uh, incredibly great House of Commons performers. You, you had uh, Pierre Trudeau, uh, Joe Clark, Ed Broadbent. Then also... Uh, in the midst of all that, you had a another great performer came on the scene uh, named Brian Mulroney. And um, I started to write to them. And I remember writing, <laughs> I still laugh at now, um, I wrote a congratulatory letter to Brian Mulroney when he first, first took his seat in the House of Commons as the new leader of the opposition. And uh, I received this wonderful letter back uh, signed Brian. I never, I've never forgotten that. And then uh, a couple of decades later, I was in Brian Maroney's papers and I found my letter from uh, from uh, my high school years in there. But I would ask, uh, I wrote to Mr. Turner, um, um, uh, Mr. Clark. I was very fascinated in prime ministers. And I started to write to them and ask to meet them. And... Uh, they said yes, and uh, I would go to Ottawa uh, uh, on my own, and I remember once going to Ottawa in high school in grade 12, I think, and I spent my entire March break by myself. I saved up for it, and I went to Ottawa, and in the period of a week, through my letter writing, uh, I was able to meet uh, Joe Clark, who was Minister of External Affairs, uh, Brian Mulroney, who was the Prime Minister. John Turner, the former Prime Minister, was leader of the opposition. And then as an added bonus, when Mr. Clark's office phoned and said I could meet him, they asked me to meet him at East Block. And the assistant, I'll never forget it, said, uh, we won't, you and Mr. Clark won't be the, in the office that long uh, uh, because uh, we're going to take you over to the Senate because Mr. Clark's having lunch with the uh, Prime Minister and the Secretary General of the United Nations. So um, they took me over there and I got to uh, uh, 
meet Prime Minister Mulroney. And I had a nice little chat with the Secretary General of the United Nations, which is a pretty cool thing when you're 17. And then Mr. Clark uh, uh, walked me back to his office, and we went, uh, we went through the tunnel from center block over to east block. And I remember him saying to me, uh, Arthur will use the underground tunnel because I don't want to talk to any press today. And a true story, I remember it like yesterday. We were walking through the tunnel, and Mr. Clark, uh, or another man, came the other way, and his name was Eric Spicer, the uh, Librarian of Parliament, um, uh, if I remember. And um, the librarian said, oh, Mr. Clark, why are you using the tunnel today? And uh, he said, well, because I, I didn't want to talk to any press. And then I piped in and said, neither did I. And I remember Mr. Clark just howling and everything. And then we went back to his office and we sat there for, I don't know, a half an hour. And I asked him questions about what it's like to be prime minister. And another thing I definitely remember like yesterday is uh, there were pictures on the wall of his office of uh, his trip to Africa as prime minister. And, and as we know, he wasn't in that long, but he uh, um, so. For whatever reason, that stuck uh, in my mind, that's for sure. And then um, I developed a real interest in Pierre Trudeau. Uh, my parents quite respected him. They didn't always vote for him, uh, but they I remember a hell of a row uh, um, in 1979 or 80, one of those two elections, where uh, my parents had a, a row before they were heading to the public school to vote and one was voting for Mr. Clark and one was voting for Mr. Trudeau. I've never forgotten that and I can't remember which one uh, it was uh, or which parent was on which uh, side but I, I remember it like yesterday and um, I also as a kid I delivered the Toronto Star so early on I read about it. I, I read about things because I was delivering the paper so I would actually sit there after school and read the paper as well. And uh, there were also other newspapers in my parents' house. The Toronto Sun and uh, the Globe Mail is often, often there as well. So I read an article in the Toronto Star that was speculating when Mr. Trudeau would step down as leader of the Liberal Party and the Prime Minister. And this was the fall of 1983. I remember it. Uh, I'll tell you why in a second. Um, so the article said that ahead of the, the uh, uh, resignation, they thought, was there was going to be a huge fundraising dinner for the Liberal Party, with the guest of honor being Prime Minister Trudeau. Tickets were $250 uh, a person. And the, the, the journalist who wrote the story, they were calling it the Last Supper. And it was being organized uh, the article said, by a senator named Senator Keith the Rainmaker Davy. Well, I was then working as a busboy part-time, and I, my pay, I remember this like yesterday, was $2.65 an hour. So I sat down and I calculated how many hours I would have to work to go and meet Pierre Trudeau. And again, I wrote, I looked up how to write to a senator, and I wrote uh, in outrage to Keith Davy, uh, telling him how it was unfair that I would have to work 
whatever, you know, 20, I don't know, 100 hours or something crazy like that to afford a ticket to meet my, my prime minister. And um, I said he needs to fix this because why should only rich people get to meet the prime minister? So the night before, Keith Davey phoned my parents' house. <laughs> and, uh, so Senator Davey told me that um, there would be a ticket waiting for me at the door. And um, when I arrived, they would know who I am and he would take me over to meet Pierre Trudeau. But the other fun part of this was uh, a guy in, in uh, my English class, he worked part-time at Dominion. And Dominion had bought two or three tables for this political fundraiser. And they had offered, they, they created a contest, uh, a contest for their young uh, uh, employees, high school kids and stuff. And it, you had to write a two-page essay about why you wanted to meet Pierre Trudeau. So my friend told me about this. So I said, well, I'll write it for you. So I, I wrote this passionate letter. And I remember saying, writing that uh, uh, Pierre Trudeau was the greatest House of Commons speaker, or uh, one of the great uh, speakers in Parliament, equal to the great John Diefenbaker. And I remember we showed it to the English teacher who said he liked everything in the letter except Pierre Trudeau was much better than John Diefenbaker. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, so my friend submitted it to his bosses and he won. <laughs> so, so both of us got to meet Pierre Trudeau. So uh, I uh, also remember that night uh, Senator Davey taking me over to meet uh, the famous actor John uh, uh, John Candy and uh, there was a whole bevy of people and Senator Davey took me around and and uh, introduced me to all this and I, I can remember parts of Mr. Trudeau's speech to this day uh, because he talked about he was working on his peace initiative they called it back then and a senior U.S. official uh, had publicly uh, criticized uh, Pierre Trudeau's uh, peace mission and I remember Mr. Trudeau saying very passionately that no pipsqueak in the Pentagon was going to direct Canadian foreign policy and everybody cheering but I remember that I, I remember the pipsqueak thing like yesterday and I think he repeated it at the White House to the press either before or after that dinner but I remember it but more importantly for me is after that about once a year, Senator Davey would call me and check in and was always encouraging about my education. And, um, and then once I got to university, I would uh, um, go to see him once a year. And um, he, he had a profound and positive effect on my life um, in so many areas, but particularly my interest in politics uh, and journalism. Because Senator Davey had chaired the famous Senate Committee on... Uh, on, on uh, Canadian newspaper ownership in the 70s. So he had quite a passion for uh, um, newspapers, and he was a liberal, so the fact I had delivered the Toronto Star was probably a good, uh, good thing in uh, his book uh, about me. So, anyway, so after that happened, uh, I just kept doing it. And um, when Pierre Trudeau resigned, 
he left office and uh, Mr. Turner became the liberal leader and then um, uh, Brian Mulroney uh, very shortly after Mr. Turner called the election and uh, Brian Mulroney and his conservatives just you know just had a massive victory 211 seats and afterwards um, probably in the fall of that year at some point I know it was the fall but I can't, I can't remember what month a television crew on CTV if I remember um, they uh, got Mr. Trudeau who didn't speak to the press after that and they found him on the street in Montreal walking to work and they appealed to his ego and they said well Mr. Trudeau who then said I don't talk to the press uh, Mr. Trudeau but a lot of liberals are blaming you for Mr. Turner's loss so they appealed to his ego and, and I'll never forget I don't remember the exact words but Pierre Trudeau said something like um, I want to well you tell those liberals that Gladstone was 85 or something when he came back for his final term as prime minister so I might do that if they keep saying that well I sat down that night in my basement and I calculated how old I would be when uh, Pierre Trudeau would be 80 or 85 whatever the Gladstone age was and I mailed him a letter off and and I said so when you're 85 I'll be 33 or whatever it was and I'll uh, put up signs for you in my hometown when you make your comeback so he phoned me and uh, <laughs> it was at dinner time and I answer the phone, and Pierre Trudeau on the phone, and I start saying yes sir, no sir, and all this. And I get off the phone, and my mom said, who is that? And I said, Pierre Trudeau. And she said, what does Pierre Trudeau want? And I said, well, he's inviting me to have coffee with him next week in Montreal. And my mother, we hadn't finished dinner, but I'll never forget, as long as I live, my mother looked at me and says, we have to get you a suit. And we drove over to the mall, and uh, I got my first suit at Tip Top Taylor's. And uh, I wore it when I walked into Pierre Trudeau's office in Montreal about a week later. And uh, um, I can't give you an exact time, but I, 45 minutes or an hour, uh, he spoke to me. And um, he talked about his peace initiative. He talked about Canadian-American relations. He, one thing I remember, he said that uh, one of the reasons he wanted to see me was he felt I was too interested in politics. And maybe I would need to first go out and have a career or something. Uh, and then I remember him saying, like he did. And uh, so anyway, so that was quite quite an incredible experience. And uh, uh, Brian Mulroney, uh, he responded as prime minister. Uh, it turned out I found out that I read somewhere in, in my hometown press how... Brian Mulroney's executive assistant, his, uh, the high school I attended was named after his ancestors. So I wrote to the executive assistant and I said, I attend the high school named after your, uh, you know, triple great grandparents and I'd like to meet the prime minister. Well, that worked too. So I had a nice chat with Mr. Mulroney, uh, Mr. Turner. And, uh, as I look back on it now, um, Full credit to those those leaders who took time to, um, to took time out of the one thing they don't have is 
um, is a lot of time on their schedules. And it was very, uh, um, none of them were ever partisan with me uh, at all. They just encouraged encouraged uh, an interest in politics and history and um, always stressed school, how important school was. And um, like I said, 100% uh, to their credit. Um, and through my father, uh, I also, uh, I, I did get very partisan for a while um, in uh, high school and, and, and then university. But my father, um, not that he didn't mind me being partisan, he always reminded me how um, even if I disagreed with a prime minister's policy, I should at least uh, respect the office. And I, I didn't always do that. But as I've gotten older, I realized dad was right. So then I went off to university, uh, did my first year at Carleton in Ottawa, and I had a lot of fun there because uh, the uh, liberals were now out of office, but there were still a lot of um, uh, very senior liberals sitting around Ottawa. And um, I remember, for example, I had read a book about Mackenzie King, so I was very interested in Jack Piggerskill. So I looked him up in the phone book and uh, phoned him, and he had me over to his house, uh, on Maple Lane in uh, Rockcliffe, I remember. And Michael Pitfield. Um, I went to see him and uh, uh, his his young assistant, lady named Hazel, I'm still friends with today. She did wonderful things for me. She, um, she made sure that Pierre Trudeau signed a copy of the Charter of Rights for me and things like that. And we're still in touch uh, today. And then I ended up uh, finishing it. Queens, and while I was at Queens, I worked at the uh, uh, Queens University Archives, and there were just a ton of uh, uh, handwritten letters in their collections from Laurier, from John A. MacDonald, Alexander Mackenzie, Mackenzie Bowl, and the job I had was I was supposed to stock, uh, restock the shelves from the research room. I would take the boxes back to their proper storage area. And uh, that actually didn't take too long. And my shifts were three hours, but I had a vault key. So I would just explore. I would just go through the collections. And um, one of the largest collections was from the member of parliament uh, for Renfrew Nipissing Pembroke, Leonard Hopkins. Uh, his files uh, were in there, and I shouldn't say this, but I would poke around, and uh, there used to be red dots on the boxes, and that that meant they were restricted. Well, when you're 21 and you see a red dot, so I, I read stuff I probably wasn't supposed to, uh, but I again, very respectful, and I'm, there's still things I never even tell anybody that I read back in the 1980s, because uh, there's still some of those files are still uh, not open. So I finished my BA, and I needed an extra credit to finish, so I stayed behind at summer term, and I drove back home after writing my final exam. So there I was, driving along the 401, and I was now, though I didn't have the piece of paper in my hand, uh, I had now earned a Bachelor of Arts. And as I got closer to Scarborough, I realized boy, that didn't mean much, and I was probably going to have to go back to work at the restaurant uh, for a while, and true story, I walked in the house, I unpacked all my stuff, and within an hour of my arriving home, 
my phone rang and it was Keith Davy, and Sender Davy, who I hadn't spoken to in months, uh, said, uh, "Arthur, I was thinking about you today. Have you finished university yet?" And I said, "Yeah, today." <laughs> and he said, "Okay, uh, I got some ideas. Uh, come and see me tomorrow." So I went downtown Toronto to his office, and Sender Davy said, "Well, I don't have the power I used to, but..." Do you want me to make a few calls and see if you'd like to work for the David Peterson government? So I ended up as a young political assistant at uh, Queen's Park. And uh, boy, that was fun. I, I encourage young people today, I don't care what party uh, an MP or MPP is, go work for them. It was life-changing. It, it was so much fun, hard work. Uh, but everybody's young in politics. Everybody's zany. And I made friendships there that... I, I still have today, but I started to get really interested in media uh, because I worked for a backbencher, and I would see what a what a tough uphill struggle a backbencher had in a uh, majority government when you're on the backbench um, to to get attention, to forward put your issues forward, and things like that. And uh, I really started to see how the media drove things. And uh, if you wanted to make change, actually, the media was another another uh, avenue uh, to do it. So I uh, ended up working for a cabinet minister, a wonderful lady, uh, Eleanor Kaplan. And uh, I worked for my hometown MPP. Uh, and like I keep saying, just a life-changing, positive, uh, incredible experience to work in politics, particularly when you're young. So after that, I uh, at one point, Keith Davey called, Senator Davey called me and uh, invited me to lunch. It was the spring of 1990. The uh, government I worked for was at 52% in the polls or something like that. And Senator Davey said, well, I was thinking, you know, you're, you're not that partisan now. Why don't you try journalism? And I was making, for those days, not a bad money at Queen's Park. And it seemed like um, being a political assistant would never end. And I remember Senator Davey uh, said, swore me to secrecy, but he said that he felt the government might lose and I'd be out of a job anyway. And I also remember him saying, um, watch, watch thinking that being a political assistant can be a career, right? And uh, he said, there's only so many Senate seats. <laughs> and uh, so there, uh, as a result, he got me into journalism school. And that was all through uh, Senator Davey. So I was at Ryerson uh, for a couple of years, quite enjoyed journalism school. And then at Christmas one year, uh, this was in the height of a recession. So half our classes, all we talked about and our professors talked about is how none of us would get jobs in journalism. It was so depressing. So I was in the student lounge one day in, uh, around Christmas in my second year and the uh, departmental assistant walked into the lounge and posted this paper on the jobs board. Well, the jobs board almost never had anything on it, so I was the only one in the lounge, so I went over and looked at it, and um, there was a reporter's job open in a place called Armprior. I had never been to Armprior. I knew as much about Armprior as I do about Bolivian literature today. I, nothing. So I phoned the number uh, on, on that, that moment, um, uh, maybe or when I got home, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But I phoned the number right away, 
And this crusty guy answered and said, yeah, yeah, I'm looking for a reporter. I said, I'm a journalism student at Ryerson, right? And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, okay, you're hired. I went, oh, okay. When do you want to start? Or, or when uh, do you need me? And uh, he said, two weeks. So I said, okay. And then I had to go around to my teachers. And uh, I came up with this scheme where why couldn't I finish my degree by sending stories from the newspaper I would be working for. And there was some resistance, but not a lot. And uh, so that's how I did it. Um, so I arrived in Arm Prior, um, January 1993. <laughs> it was cold as, as all hell. And I had to drive to Renfrew to meet this editor. And I went to see him and we shook hands. And, and uh, he said, well, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Basically, your job is to fill 24 pages a week, and if you don't get me sued, um, you'll never hear from me. So before I left to drive back to Armprior, um, the editor said, um, you're going to need to use a camera. Well, I had never used a camera in my life, so he, hand, he handed me a Pentax K1000. I still remember that. And he said, well, I need a picture for the Renfrew paper. Uh, so go take me a picture. And I said, well, of what? And he said, I don't care. Just take a picture. Like something interesting. So I said, okay. And I walked around town and I found this mill that looked kind of cool. And I took a picture of it. And then I took 10 pictures of it. Just I had no idea what, you know, what to do. And then um, I took it back and he showed me how to take the film out. And I gave it to him. And then I drove off to Park. And I went to this office on Main Street that, you know, I didn't know, so I didn't know a single person in Armprior. And there were uh, 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 women my age who worked at the paper, two or three, and I walked in and said, hi, I'm the new reporter. And they're like, oh, yeah, another one, eh? You know. <laughs> and uh, so then I just walked around town and I looked at um, particularly gross, the grocery store, the uh, board where people were advertising they needed this or the high school was uh, raising money to um, you know send a bicycle to a developing nation or medical equipment or whatever. So I just started to phone people and I would write a story uh, about it. And then I went to uh, my first town council meeting and they had a little press table and I remember the, the mayor, a uh, wonderful lady, uh, Pat Robinson. But this is the first time I met her. And she walked over and she said, oh, are you the new reporter at the news? And I said, uh, yes, your worship. And she said, wonder how long you'll last. <laughs> and she went back and did whatever mayors do. So I wrote a few stories out of town council. And uh, I took, you know, if you needed 20 pictures for the paper, I took 100. And I started to... I was stressing about it. I would learn how to operate this K-1000 Pentax. And I would write all the stories and the cut lines, and they would go off to Renfrew. And then the paper arrived. It was a weekly. And there was even a story about me, you know, the new reporter, Art Mills. And uh, so that's what I did. And uh, it, talk, talk about a crash course in a community. Right, and 
I was never too scared about talking to strangers. So, you know, I would write about anything, and uh, it sort of became my paper, right? And I, like I said, I had a crash course in Renf or Arm Prayer history. Uh, I, I always gravitated to history, so the Arm Prayer History Club probably got more uh, press uh, than any other time in Arm Prayer history when I was there. And something else I did, my first week uh, in Arm Prayer, uh, at the end of the week, I invited every single person I met that week to a party at my apartment this tiny little apartment and the mayor came <laughs> that's all these people people from the other paper and we were all standing around this tiny little apartment and i don't know that's how i kind of introduced myself right so so uh <laughs> and another fun thing i remember was it was uh uh i don't know what it was called but the local high school had an annual day where a uh, a uh, student from the high school would follow around different people for a day. So the date was agreed, but in between, uh, I had arranged a sit-down interview with the new leader of the opposition in nearby Ottawa, a man named Jean Cretchen. And that happened to be the day that this student from Armpire District High School was uh, supposed to be shadowing me. So I said to myself, well, she's going to have a fun day, isn't she? So uh, we drove to Parliament Hill, and uh, I, I, I uh, went to meet uh, Mr. Cretchen's assistant, Patrick Perizo, who I actually have met since. And he pulled me aside, and he said, what's the student doing here? And I said, well, it's take shadow a... Shadow a uh, a worker day in Armpire, and today's her day, so this is what I'm doing today, so, and he said, that's a little strange, isn't it? And I said, well, and he says, you want her to sit in on the interview with Mr. Cretchen? And I said, oh yeah, and she can ask some questions. <laughs> so, in we went. Uh, we In we went to Mr. Cretchen's office, and uh, the young woman was quite petrified, and, uh, but she, uh, she asked a couple questions, uh, and I remember Mr. Cretchen, uh, um, he was under a lot of uh, pressure in the Liberal Party then. This was 1993, that he was yesterday's man. And uh, I remember him saying, saying, oh, you put in your article that those people in the Liberal Party who say that they're nervous Nellies. Right? So uh, so I quite enjoyed Pembroke, or uh, Armpire. And then I got uh, promoted to the daily newspaper in the chain in Pembroke. And uh, again life-changing stuff. Uh, I got to Pembroke and it was really cool to have um, uh, colleague reporters because I had never really worked with anybody except the editor uh, down in Armbar who had actually kept his word and I didn't see him very much, right? So kind of a dream editor. Anybody who's been in journalism to have an editor you don't see much. It's not a bad life. <laughs> so uh, Pembroke was uh, quite exciting and one thing I remember was because of politics uh, I knew uh, before going to Pembroke that the mayor of Pembroke, uh, Terry McCann, wonderful man I'm still in touch with today, and uh, Mayor McCann, an interesting part of his biography was he had been Brian Maroney's debating partner at St. Evex uh, back in the 50s. So what are you going to do with that if you're Art Milnes? I, uh, 
uh, wrote a letter to Brian Maroney and said I wanted an interview where I wouldn't ask him anything but questions about the mayor of Pembroke. And uh, Maroney, Mr. Maroney was just out of office, and my phone rang, you know, about a week later, and I, I'll remember it till the day I die. Um, back in at St. Evex, Mr. Maroney was tall and lanky and skinny, and they called him Bones. And the mayor, Mayor McCann, was called Ace. So my phone rang. I picked it up, you know, Art Milnes. The voice said, hi, Art. It's Bones. I understand you want to talk about Ace. And, uh, and uh, that was quite a thrill. That was my first, uh, I had quite an interview with the former prime minister. Uh, and I kept my word. And I, I couldn't care less about free trade or Meech Lake or whatever was going on in uh, politics at the time. I was actually more interested in his, his uh, take uh, on his old friend. And it was it was quite a thrill. So Pembroke, I uh, the other thing uh, about Pembroke is before I went up there, um, uh, uh, the local MPP Sean Conway had come through Armpire a few times, and I had met him when I was a, a young political assistant at Queens Park, and I used to love his speaking style and uh, references to history, and even at Queens Park he would mention all these places in the Ottawa Valley that I was now uh, seeing. So he recommended to me, if I was moving to Pembroke, that I needed to uh, read the uh, first volume of Paul Martin Sr.'s uh, memoirs. And uh, that had a great impact on me, because uh, if I could zip back to my Queen's days for a minute, um, my parents, my mother in particular, she thought Paul Martin Sr. was the greatest, because Mom had worked on a polio ward and was forever scarred by... Uh, having to uh, nurse uh, these children in particular who had been victimized by polio. And it was Paul Martin Sr. Uh, who had played the major role in getting the Salk vaccine into Canada. So for my mom, he was quite a hero. So when I was in university, I would, uh, a couple of times in political science courses, um, I remember one of them, I, I was assigned um, uh, to examine... Uh, cabinet decision making and the Prime Minister's involvement some political science paper that I hope nobody ever finds that I wrote but I figured to myself who's the Canadian alive today who sat in more cabinets than anybody else was Paul Martin uh, Senior who lived you know uh, in uh, Windsor so I started to write him and uh, he would write back these long handwritten letters uh, answering my questions. So that allowed me, uh, you know, as a 21-year-old in my footnoting, to put personal communication between Arthur Milnes and the Honorable Paul Martin, and then I would, I would give the date, and the professors would say, what are you talking about? And I'd say, well, that's a quote from a letter Paul Martin wrote me, or um, he phoned me. So I interviewed him on the phone, and these professors were just shocked that a student was doing this kind of stuff. So anyway, so by the time I got to Pembroke, I was very predisposed with an interest in Paul Martin Sr. And uh, I hadn't realized how uh, incredibly important Pembroke was to uh, the Paul Martin family uh, story. And I became, there's that outrage again. So I'm in Pembroke for about a year, and I realized there was nothing named after Paul Martin, which I just found 
shocking. You know, one of the most uh, important cabinet ministers of the 20th century uh, for Canadians. So I went to city council to a committee and I spoke as a private citizen, not a reporter. And I said, the city of Pembroke, we have to name something after Paul Martin. And a shocking thing happened. They agreed. You go to City Hall and you win. How often does that happen? So uh, when I go to Pembroke today and I drive by uh, Paul Martin Senior Drive, I'm a, I still have a quiet, quiet pride uh, in uh, my tiny little role there. But another thing that happened was Paul Martin's son, Paul Martin Jr., uh, was Canada's Minister of Finance. And I knew that he had three sisters who were still living in or three aunts who were still living in Pembroke. So in 1994, when he delivered his first budget, I thought, you know, I don't want to do the standard story where you ask the Pembroke Chamber of Commerce and all these for their reaction, and they're all going to say things, you know, uh, the usual things. Um, taxes are too high, not enough money's coming in. I just found that boring. So I phoned um, Aunt Lucille. Uh, and she was home, and it turned out she was sick. So the Minister of Finance had sent had sent uh, a car for his aunts to go watch him deliver the budget. And but Aunt Lucille was sick, so she said, "Well, I'm going to watch the budget. Why don't you come over to my house and watch it with me?" So uh, over I went, and I watched. Uh, I watched. Uh, Aunt Lucille, who was just so thrilled at her favorite uh, nephew's uh, budget, and she called him Little Paul, and she showed me the room where uh, the room where Paul Paul uh, Martin uh, Jr. used to uh, stay in Pembroke extensively because his father was uh, a very busy minister. So in the summers he would stay in uh, Pembroke, and over in my time in Pembroke. There had to be a hundred people I met who claimed uh, that they were with Paul Martin the first time he had a drink. And uh, <laughs> the stories uh, were great. But anyway, so I had a great time with uh, Aunt Lucille. And uh, at the end of my interview, I said, you know, uh, uh, you know that not everybody in Ottawa is going to like your nephew's or little Paul's budget. And she said, well, you write down that anybody criticizes little Paul, I'll go to Parliament Hill and shoot them. So, <laughs> me being me, stupidly as I look back, I actually kept it out of the story. I didn't want to, you know, cause any trouble. So then I was in uh, back at work the next day, and I was driving along, and I had CBC Radio on, and there she was on the radio saying she'd shoot people if they criticized little Paul's budget. So, and... Um, I, I still treasure the um, uh, story I wrote on the front page of the Pembroke Observer, and it showed Aunt Lucille uh, watching the TV uh, in her living room, and uh, the headline was, Aunt Praises Little Paul's Budget. And uh, I treasured that clipping for so long. Well, to zip ahead a few years, in 2017... I helped, uh, covertly helped organize Paul Martin Day in Pembroke, where the former Prime Minister, Paul Martin Jr., 
would come to uh, Algonquin College and accept a, po a posthumous honorary diploma in his father's name. And uh, there was a wonderful event that day at the Champlain Discovery Museum. And I walked in, and the former Prime Minister was there talking to people, just loving it, and uh, uh, that his father was being honored uh, so many years later in his hometown. And there was my article on display. So I, I have a picture today of that day in 2017 that I treasure of Mr. Martin and I holding my article from 1994. <laughs> so uh, Pembroke was a very important place for me. I was quite fascinated when I worked at the Pembroke Observer that off the newsroom they had the old uh, bound copies of the old Pembroke Observer from the 19th century and the early 20th century. So often I would just sit there and read them and I was fascinated to you know discover that uh, Sir Robert Borden campaigned in Pembroke and the extensive coverage the Observer gave or former President of the United States William Howard Taft came to Pembroke and uh, that was covered extensively. Uh, Mackenzie King and Sir Wilfrid Laurier, they seem to be around the area uh, constantly, which makes sense that often the valley was used because it was so close to Ottawa as a place to road test campaign themes and uh, other things. And I've found in some of my research uh, occasions where not just uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, but Mackenzie King would be accompanying uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier. I found this wonderful little mention of um, um, Sir Wilfrid Laurier himself dropping the puck at an Armprior hockey game. <laughs> so I don't know who won, but hopefully Armprior. And uh, it's remarkable, the, um, the local MPP, Sean Conway, he told me a story about his grandfather uh, telling him how his grandfather remembered walking from Barry's Bay to Eganville to hear Charles Tupper campaign in the 1896 election. And um, don't tell my friends in Pembroke, but I often read uh, the Eganville Leader uh, because I quite enjoyed their uh, uh, look back to history. And I found some fascinating things, you know, uh, that were in there. So the Valley's been, was quite a, uh, like when I moved to the Ottawa Valley, there were two daily newspapers in Pembroke. Uh, a library that, if you study it, probably was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, <laughs> and nobody talks about it, which is was quite incredible. Uh, and a uh, local news station and a local TV station, or radio news and TV, all doing local news. So it was quite a special place and time to be in the Ottawa Valley, and then combine that with the history, and it was quite quite inspiring. Time now for a short break, but if you think you've heard it all. Wait till we come back. In part two, Arthur Milnes will tell us all about the time he got an American president to write a fly fishing column for his northern Canadian newspaper that had only 800 subscribers. Or the time he spent working on a memoir for one Canadian prime minister. Or wrote a speech for another. Or the time he had tea in the British House of Lords with just himself and Margaret Thatcher or the time he and five Canadian Prime Ministers went to Nelson Mandela's funeral and where he met U2's famous frontman, Bono. You get the picture. It's just another day in the life of an ordinary, curious Canadian. We'll be right back. <laughs> 